This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. You can go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 11, and this morning we're going to be covering a topic that I know you've probably studied before, it's very familiar to you, this topic of prayer and Jesus teaching on prayer and coming to the Father in prayer. And if you're like me, you've probably even read books on prayer. And I don't know, I, I feel like every time I read a book on prayer, all I am is discouraged that I don't pray enough. I, uh, every single uh, resource I've ever seemed to pick up on prayer, all it does is make me feel guilty and convicted that I don't pray enough. And so this morning as we look at prayer, I, I want to address... Uh, this passage on prayer and Jesus' teaching on prayer, but I also want to address a number of misconceptions about prayer. For example, is effective prayer synonymous with persistent prayer? Is it like Elijah who, in 1 Kings 18, as he was praying for rain, he prayed and prayed and prayed, and finally seven times he prays, and the rain comes and the floodgates open. Is genuine persistence asking the same thing over and over until it's eventually granted? Kind of like nagging God. Does effective prayer require emotional urgency and fervor? So in other words, maybe the secret to prayer is that I pray it over and over and over again and it's adding emotion. I'm passionate about it. And this repetition plus emotional force, it equals unleashing the unstoppable floodgates of heaven. Well, that seems to be the way prayer is talked about in popular books and perhaps the way we've learned it from a certain um, section of the Christian church. I want to talk about prayer and being continuous in prayer. That's really persistence, not repetitious. Praying the same thing over and over. And we're going to see in Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer is given uh, to us uh, by Jesus when the disciples ask Him to teach them how to pray. But He also gives a parable and some teaching that follows in Luke 11. And I want to take it all together to show that Jesus is, is showing something very specific. I, I want to show you a profound reality this morning from Luke 11. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, instead of giving them a method, what he does in this passage is he simply reminds them who their Father in heaven is. And this is incredibly important for us as Christians, as we're going to see this morning, because I think most books out there on prayer is trying to fix your method. Whether it's praying a certain way, but you know, we've learned helpful tools to teach us how to pray. Like, who's heard of the Acts uh, method of praying? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's helpful as sort of an organizational thought, or perhaps uh, you've heard teaching on the Lord's Prayer that you start with praise to God first, and then you give your petitions. 
As if somehow you give your petitions first, uh, God's going to say, no, no, no. You blew it. You got the wrong order. Well, I want to show you this this morning. So let's read Luke 11. And I want to start in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So he, he gives this Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a slightly different version of the Lord's Prayer. And I don't want to go into the differences this morning. I actually want to move on from this because he, he starts with saying, Father, hallowed be your name. And I guess it is good to be aware that that would have been shocking to his disciples. Addressing God as Father was not common among the Jewish people. And so, for him to say, this is how you pray, say Father. Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That would have shocked their sensibilities a little bit. They would have been comfortable saying, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. They would have been comfortable saying, you know, the God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who alone dwells in high and holy places, who is undefiled and separate from sinners. They would have been okay with that, but to say Father would have been slightly shocking. Well, he goes on, he gives them a parable in verse 5. He says to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed, I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray one more time before I begin. Father, thank You for Your Word. I ask that You would go before this proclamation of Your Word and give us ears to hear. That You would free my brothers and sisters from any misunderstandings or discouragement in their prayer life because... They've just simply been believing wrong things about you. May they get a glimpse of who you are, that you are a good Father in heaven who delights to answer the prayers of his children. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this parable, verses 5 to 8, we want to look at this parable because Jesus, he, the disciples say, teach us to pray. He, he says, pray to the Father, and then he gives this parable. And at face value, the parable kind of makes sense. The householder it represents the father, the one hearing the prayers. And the friend who comes at midnight represents the, the picture of the one who's praying. But we need to look at two very important elements before we interpret the parable. The first is the use of this word in verse 8, 
impudence that I read out of the English Standard Version. Now, if you have a New American Standard in front of you, or a King James or a New King James, you'll see the word persistence. So, last time I checked, impudence and persistence are not synonyms. So there's something going on with this word. Like, why does this word have such a massive difference in translation? And it greatly affects our understanding of the parable. So that's the first thing we need to, to conquer and cover and, and talk about. The second is the Hebrew understanding of hospitality and culture. And the reason that is, is because we need to understand if the word is impudence or shamelessness, was it shameless for this friend to come by at midnight and knock on the door? Okay, so here's the two things we need to deal with. The first, the use of this word impudence in verse 8. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In the Greek, this word is the word anideia, which is very easy to find the meaning of this word anideia. I'll read to you a dictionary a definition. To people who have no proper sense of shame, and willingly engage in improper conduct. So synonyms are shamelessness, impudence, immodesty even sometimes. In Greek writing, it appears with rashness and insolence and recklessness and wantonness and crudeness. So we have, okay, the word in the Greek is clearly shamelessness or impudence. So why in the world do we have the word persistence in so many translations the holman christian standard bible the net bible translate it persistence well i don't have time to go through the history of it and it might be kind of boring but what we can say in shorthand is that it came through the latin so we have the latin vulgate translated in the fifth century by jerome and he translates it with the proper latin word um, improbitatum is the Latin word, which means wickedness or impudence. But over the thousand years where Latin was the language of the church and it was the, the, the language that was interpreted for scriptures, that word for impudence got changed into the Latin word importunitatum. And so the King James says importunity or persistence. In fact, what's fascinating is if you go look at the Wycliffe English translation, which Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, he translated from the Latin and not going back to the Greek. He translates the Latin word improbitatum, which is impudence, as importunity or persistence, asking over and over and over again. And so this word got changed in meaning. A lot of the English translations will lean on the Wycliffe and King James translations because of the heritage, because of the history, and we have this misunderstanding that arises from this parable. And what is the misunderstanding? That persistent prayer is asking the same thing over and over, sort of twisting God's arm, and finally He answers. In fact, if we were looking at the parable and we were saying this was a comparison, and God's like the householder, and you're like the friend coming at midnight, well, you're finally, if you just keep asking, God will answer your prayer. The problem with that is what does it say about the character of God? Nothing good. 
In fact, it makes God more like us. It makes God more like human thinking. This is what we do with, this is what kids do with their parents, right? They persist in their asking. In the aisle at the grocery store, the candy that they put at kids' eye level, right? It's, can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? (laughs) Over and over. This does not cause God to answer us, this idea of persistence. Now, if it is shamelessness, what do we do with this? What does it mean to be shameless in asking? Or is that even what Jesus is getting at here? Well, in Jewish culture, the second thing I want to address, hospitality, you know, is highly valued. You couldn't just turn anybody away if they showed up at the door. You were expected to bring them in. And when you brought them into your house, you fed them, you gave them a bed to sleep, and you offered them protection. And so the midnight visitor, the friend knocking on the neighbor's door, would have been something commonplace, ordinary. It wouldn't have been surprising. It wouldn't have been outrageous. But... 2,000 years later in our American culture, we think that would be crazy, someone knocking at our door at midnight just to ask for bread. Right? We, we, we teach our kids, don't ever call anybody after 10 o'clock. We put our do not disturb on our cell phones so that people get the hint. And the idea of going and asking for bread at midnight Well, they didn't have the luxury of 24-hour Safeways to go down to the store themselves. And so for us, this idea of shamelessness must be, well, man, I just have to to be bold and shameless in my asking or something. Is that what Jesus is teaching? No. We misunderstand the parable if that's what we think is going on. So let's look at this. Verse 5, it starts with this phrase, which of you? And the which of you begins a rhetorical question by Jesus that lasts three verses and it expects a negative response. Which of you would act this way? No one would act this way. This is ridiculous for this householder to act this way, to say, oh hey, don't bother me. The door's shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I can tell you from the times kids slept in my bed, I wanted to do it, get up anytime I could because they were kicking me in the side and rolling over and slapping me with their hands. He says, I, I can't get up. I can't do this. Even though I'm your friend, there's just no way. And to the Hebrew culture, this would have been outrageous. In fact, what's going on is Jesus is telling an outrageous, exaggerated story that's meant to be funny to the audience. No householder would refuse assistance, and no petitioner coming at midnight would be shameless. They're not offered as realistic responses at all, but rather dramatic components of a ridiculous story. Classic example of tongue-in-cheek. So disciples say, teach us to pray. He says, pray to the Father in heaven. Immediately, they're thinking, well, we can't pray to the Father. I mean, the temple, there's the Holy of Holies, and that's why we have the priesthood, is to offer up sacrifices on our behalf, to to talk to God on our behalf. How could we pray to the Father? And so Jesus gives them a parable, and he says, 
uh, who would which of you if there was a a friend who came by at midnight and you had to go to your neighbor and ask for bread would have a friend who'd say nah i can't get up it's too much trouble Uh, my kids are in bed with me go away they would say no way this is ridiculous and then he goes on to explain this you see the story is not a comparison The parable is not meant to be taken as a comparison between the householder and the friend and you and God praying. It's meant to be a contrast. The sleeping householder is not like God. He's precisely unlike the father. If the householder fails to respond out of friendship alone, which is outrageous and impossible in Hebrew culture, how much more May God be counted on to respond promptly out of unfailing love and devotion. See, he gives the interpretation in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So see, the Father not only hears our prayers the first time and responds freely, but our coming is never shameless to Him. Never There is no such thing as bad timing with God. So what does Jesus do here? They say, teach us to pray. And he says, let me tell you about my father who's in heaven. He's unlike the outrageous parable. And what he is like, then verses 9 through 13, we see the command to pray here. Verse 9, I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Think about the simplicity of this prayer. The words are simple. Ask, seek, and knock. And that's all we have to do to lift our prayers to the Father in heaven and have His attention. Why? Well, we already have His heart. Matthew 6. Let's turn over to Matthew 6. And this is... um, During Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He had given, at the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. The same question was asked, teach us to pray. And now, the application in this sermon, verse 25 of chapter 6. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? To the Father, absolutely. You have His heart. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to His span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus uses the word Father for God twice in this explanation, and He says, your Father knows what you need. He cares about you. He provides for you. The Gentiles try to answer their own prayers by seeking their own answers. 
what to drink, what to eat, what to wear. But seek first God's kingdom and he'll add all these things to you. It's incredible. So what do we see back in Luke 11 verse 9? The asking is not with repetitious persistence. It's simply asking with confidence. Knowing who the Father is and the Father will give. We don't need fancy repetitive prayers and we can be certain of the Father's response. Ask. Ask. And what does it say? He hears you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Turn over to John 14, 14. I want to address at this point one misunderstanding about prayer that comes up from this verse in John 14, 14. Talking about the method of prayer and and this is in your notes, I believe. But in John 14, 14, actually start in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, Jesus says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what is the misunderstanding? That asking in Jesus' name is like a secret formula. right? It's the guarantee that you're going to get an answer. This idea of asking in Jesus' name, the misunderstanding is that there's a secret, special way to repeat Jesus' name before success is eventually given from God in heaven. After all, how do you know the food's blessed? Well, you said in Jesus' name, amen. At the end of it, you ever have one of your kids not say in Jesus' name? Did you ever wonder if the food was blessed? What is the response to this? Well, in this passage, we don't have time to dig into detail, but confessing Jesus' name in this passage is equivalent to submitting to Him as Lord. And so asking in Jesus' name throughout John's Gospel involves praying according to the character of this one and only Son. He's our high priest. Asking in His name means we're praying according to His character, submitting to His Lordship. And He's the one who brings us near to the Father, right? I think of Ephesians 2, 18, that in Christ, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. We have access to go into the very throne room of God. Now back in Luke 11, verse 10, you have this verse more than simply a restatement of verse 9. What he says in verse 10 is that there are further promises and the father's response is guaranteed look at verse 10 for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened in other words beloved your needs will be met your search will lead to solutions he says everyone And so what does this mean? We're asking with confident faith, expecting the Father's answer to everyone. Now, last time I checked, whether it was Greek or Latin or English, the word everyone means everyone, which includes you and me. doesn't mean some. It means everyone. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I know if you're like me, you have doubts about that. If you're weighed down by the cares of this world and the burdens of life and circumstances, 
Sometimes it feels like when you pray, your prayers don't get to God. They bounce right off the ceiling and come back down. That's how I felt. And so to hear this, verse 10, everyone who asks receives. That almost seems too hard to believe. After all, aren't there people who are closer to God? Aren't there people who are holier? Maybe I could ask them to pray for me. Has that ever been your motivation? It's been mine. Sometimes I felt like, well, God's not hearing my prayers. Maybe I'll ask one of my friends to pray. Maybe God will listen to them since he's not listening to me. Well, that's a lie from the devil. Why? Because that kind of thinking says that the God that I'm praying to, I'm not believing that he's a good father in heaven. I'm believing that he's ignoring me. That he's pretending my prayers aren't coming up to him. That he's turned his back against me. Which is contrary to what Jesus is teaching here, by the way. Well, another misunderstanding that arises about prayer is seen over in Mark 11, verses 23 and 24. Mark 11, 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What is the misunderstanding here? Well, all things are possible for those who believe and the power of faith can turn the impossible into reality for anyone willing to take the risk of true believing prayer. This is what is at the heart of the prosperity gospel. Just name it and claim it. That all you need to have is a great faith. The problem is you don't believe enough. If you would just believe enough, then God would answer your prayers. A great faith is necessary. Well, what's the response? Well, when we pray, Jesus is not teaching we need a great faith. Jesus is not saying if you have such and such a faith, then your prayers will be answered. What Jesus is saying is you cannot have both doubt and faith simultaneously. Therefore, have faith in God. Pray and you'll be answered. In other words, if it's not about a method or having a great amount of faith, what it's about is knowing the character of your Father in heaven and coming to Him as a good father. Like James 1 says, he's the father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes down in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. And if we're believing that, then we know that he answers prayer. That he answered it yesterday, he's gonna answer it today, and he'll answer it the same way tomorrow because he's the father of lights in heaven. And there's no variation in him. And every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so the issue isn't the amount of your faith. The issue is doubting his character versus trusting his character. Isn't that incredible? And so back to Luke 11, Jesus says he doesn't stop at that explanation or that command to ask and seek and knock. He gives further explanation in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So there is a certainty of the Father's response here. And in verses 11 and 12, we see that the Father gives what is best. Jesus brings it back to this idea of them understanding that God is their Father in heaven. And He talks about earthly fathers in verse 11. And He says, what kind of father if his son asked for a fish, would give him a snake. No, none, it's outrageous, it's ridiculous. That would be a cruel answer to a request. Now he's gonna be getting at the character of the father, right? And so he's saying, no human parent would be so cruel as to give his son a snake or a scorpion, something dangerous, venomous, potentially deadly, when the son asks for a good gift, just simply, I want to eat, I want to fish. By the way, the flip side of that, which I think is also true, that the Father gives what is best, if us, in our foolishness, ask Him for something dangerous like a snake or a scorpion, the Father gives us what is best and not what we ask for. Sometimes He doesn't give us what we ask for because He knows it will hurt us and harm us. And so he gives us what is best. Isn't that incredible? And then he goes on to say, um, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now there's one other parable in Luke, and I want to turn over there. Luke 18 Another parable on prayer, that is. There's lots more parables in Luke. There's, there's another one on prayer in Luke 18. Verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now we should be listening to this because the reason Jesus gave us this parable is so that we wouldn't lose heart. And I don't know where you're at this morning, beloved, but you might be at the point of losing heart. We're living in crazy times and crazy circumstances and this fallen world and our own battle with the sin that remains in us. And you might be barely hanging on. And do you remember that Jesus said, a bruised reed I won't break and a smoldering wick I won't put out? This is why He's telling this parable. Because He knows the people listening are tempted to lose heart, to just give up, throw in the towel. So He gives us this. And he says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, if we misunderstand the parable to think that it's persistence of the woman and that somehow God is the judge in this parable and the woman is us and that we have to persistently beat God down, we've misunderstood the parable. God is precisely unlike this unjust judge. In fact, Jesus lets us know because he says the judge doesn't fear God what, or respect man. And he repeats it again. But he goes on to say, 
And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what Jesus does is he says, don't lose heart. Your Father in heaven knows and he's a just judge. And he's going to bring justice speedily. He also gives a caveat in a way by saying God's measure of speediness is not the same as ours because it's when the Son of Man comes. And He hasn't come yet. But it reminds me of Revelation. You remember in Revelation when the, the prayers of the saints that are in the incense and the altars before the throne and they're the prayers of the saints crying out, How long, O Lord, until You bring justice on the earth? And in chapter 6, we hear the answer of God. He says, Yet in a little while. But when He does come in chapter 6, all of the wicked cry out to the rocks and the mountains and they say, hide us from Him who sits on the throne, the Father, and from the Lamb because the day of their wrath has come and who can endure it? Who can stand? He's going to bring justice. He's going to make all wrongs right. And He's going to make all things new. And so the Father gives what is best. And in this parable in Luke 18, Jesus is teaching that the reason people are kept waiting is not because we have to get God's attention like this judge or that He's uninterested like this judge, but rather He has determined as the heavenly judge that we need to wait. And so our prayer ought to be filled with patience. Faithful patience. Trusting in the character of God. Who He is, He's a good Father. And when we don't understand what He's doing, we need to trust who He is. And not pull away from Him, but draw near to Him. And so back in Luke 11, verse 13, the good gifts of God are seen, right? He, he says, if you're evil, know how to give good gifts. How much more, this argument from the lesser to the greater, will the Father give good gifts? Well, what is the good gift in verse 13? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. Now, looking at this, all of a sudden we think, why does He bring the Holy Spirit into this? We're talking about answering prayer and meeting needs and asking and seeking and knocking. Well, again, we have this, we, we have this background of the Jewish Old Covenant, of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And the fact that people couldn't draw near to God, that they could if they went through the means of the Old Covenant and offering sacrifices and having the high priest mediate on their behalf to God. But now Jesus has come. And in the Gospel of Luke, He's saying the kingdom of God is drawn near and I'm bringing in a new covenant. I'm bringing in something new, a new way, a living way. And He's going to go to the cross. And He's going to die for our sins. And He's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise from the dead. And He's going to send the Spirit, the promise from the Father, who is going to come and bring the new covenant to us so that the Holy Spirit indwells us. So that now we become the temple. Now we can draw near to God. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and have a high priest do it for us because Jesus, our high priest, is seated at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding for us. And we can draw near. 
And so when Jesus says the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him, what He's saying is the Father's going to give you what is best. God is going to give you Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly good news, by the way. And we're going to look at some of the implications the rest of the New Testament brings out in the book of Hebrews. But petitionary prayer, asking God for, our need, for what we need, is the means by which the Father gives us not necessarily what we ask for, but that which is most necessary and that which is best. And in this verse, he says the gift par excellence that you need more than anything else is the Holy Spirit to indwell you and to come. All others pale in comparison. It's why Paul in Ephesians 1 says at the very beginning, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on for 14 verses to talk about all those things. And he says, oh, by the way, the Spirit's the down payment and pledge of our inheritance. By the way, Paul in Romans says the Spirit prays for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought to. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So not only do we get this down payment and pledge of a new covenant and get forgiveness of sins and we can draw near to God, we have the third person of the Trinity interceding for us on our behalf, praying to the Father. We have the second person of the Trinity, our high priest, seated at his right hand, interceding for us. And we have God the Father who has initiated this whole thing. It was his plan to begin with, and he wants you to draw near. The Father is pictured in this parable and in this teaching as the ideal parent who hears every child's request the first time and promises to respond at the right moment in the best possible way. So here's, here's the application. Just ask. You're always heard because you're always loved. That is liberating and freeing, isn't it? Just ask. You are always heard because you're always loved. And may we get off of this, this hamster wheel of thinking that we have to pray over and over and over to get the Father's attention. Like a little child going, Mommy, 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 Mommy. And they say it so many times they don't even remember what they were asking. And all you moms out there are thinking, I'm exhausted by you just using that example. The Father's never exhausted by us. He's God Almighty. He's never weary and worn out. The Father, by the way, though, doesn't just give us anything and everything we ask for. He gives us what He knows is best. Now, think about this. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that in your mind, that picture. As Jesus kneels in the garden the night he's going to be betrayed he pours out his cries to the father and he cries out abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what i will but what you will and the incredible thing we see as the father's will in isaiah 53 is to crush the son 
Uh, We see throughout scriptures this picture of to have him drink the cup of wrath. What the Father wills is not from a stern lawgiver threatening vengeance, but rather, it's not an impersonal force of fate either. Rather, the Father that Jesus addresses in the garden is the one he's known all his life, found to be bountiful in his provision, reliable in his promises, and faithful in his love. This is who Jesus is praying to and believing in and entrusting himself to. So Jesus can obey the will that sends him to the cross with hope and expectation because it's the will of Abba, Father, whose love has been proved. It can be trusted so fully and obeyed so completely. It's why he says as he's hanging on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now Christian, you have boldness to enter the throne room because you have the heart of the king you have the father's heart because of who we are to the father because of jesus work of going to the cross and dying for our sins and rising from the dead and by faith we get united to him and not only that the father gives us his spirit we now have confident access to the very throne room of god In fact, it's one of my favorite words in the book of Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. After he'd been explaining why Jesus, he spent the whole book explaining why Jesus is better than everything. Better than Moses, better than the temple, better than the sacrifices, better than the priesthood. Because he brings in a new covenant. He's better than all of it. He says, verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, that's the word, parousia, boldness, confident access, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't this incredible? He he says that because of the Holy Spirit given to us, this promise that Jesus uh, mentions in Luke 11, the Father's going to give the Holy Spirit We now can draw near to the Father through a new and living way in the Son. And the approach is one of confidence, he says in verse 19, which is boldness. We have access. This is in contrast to the Old Covenant where there was no boldness and confident access. You couldn't just walk into the Holy of Holies. You were going to experience an Indiana Jones moment. The face melting of the Ark of the Covenant, right? You know, you saw it you haven't youtube it now we have confident access he says in verse 19 the way is open in verse 20 and 21 because jesus our high priest has gone before us verse 22 the holy spirit by implication has washed our hearts and our consciences clean and so we can draw near and he says with a true heart with full assurance of faith it reminds me of chapter 4 What does he say? 
You know this verse. Since we have a great high priest, verse 14, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, same word, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have a Father who has drawn near to us through His Son and by His Holy Spirit has made us to be the temple of God, the place where His glory dwells, and He invites you and I to draw near to Him as a perfect Father in heaven. This is Jesus' whole point to His disciples. You want to know how to pray? Understand who your Father is in heaven. And when you understand who your Father is in heaven, you will draw near to Him because He is a good, good Father. You can approach the Father and your coming, beloved, is never shameful to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word.